Good morning. On April 10th, 1922, critical, and it's WBT, Charlotte, North Carolina. was born. And I remember we would listen to WBT. Yeah, this is a big broadcast for WBT. Martin, corner Look at that day out there. What do you want to hear tonight? Hello, WBT. You're on the air. Hello, Bob Lacey. Hello there, neighbor. Hello, first-timer. Taken by Trapuca. It's good. It was about Charlotte Hornet. History's been made. Hurricane Hugo has made landfall. Yeah, no power. No information coming into the station other than the telephone. It's a very special radio station because people care. It's the John Hancock radio program. Carolina Panthers have been named the NFL's newest expansion. <laughs> With their first touchdown. Bank of America Stadium. Kind of jumping back and forth in our coverage what here. A long, strange trip. It's still in. Throw me in the pool, please. Ray Carruth managed to evade police. David Chadwick. The plane has now crashed into the World Trade Center. It uh, would appear purposeful. We'll be the first to welcome you to our little club thingy. Bam. I'm Stacey Sims. Charlotte's Mr. Wright. Carolina Panthers are headed to Super Bowl 50. The Star Heels are going to win the National What's going to be the impact? We may of this? see some serious issues here at midnight. We're providing insight that they're not getting anywhere else. Mr. Trump, welcome to Charlotte Radio. Good morning, Bob. Hey, gather around, my friends, in this mythical ballot. WPT. The great colossus of the South. Through the years. I love this radio station as much as you guys do, but I love this radio station because of you guys. This powerful voice of the good stuff. This is Bo Thompson's Century Podcast. Tonight from New Orleans, Louisiana, basketball heavyweights Carolina and Michigan will play for the national championship. The importance of this game is so vast and the tension is so great that it's hard to believe that soon the 1993 season, after weeks of building momentum and drama, is about to reach top speed and then suddenly slam on the brakes. So into this Superdome pressure cooker come the only two ball clubs left standing. The brash Michigan Wolverines and the equally confident Tar Heels, both anticipating the joy of absolute victory. We'll have Woody Durham's pregame conversation with Carolina head coach Dean Smith for you when we return live to the Superdome with more of the ACC today. Get ready. It's game time in the NFL. Straight up the middle. Oh, no. oh my goodness. That was unreal. Yes, touchdown. Here's the play-by-play voice of the Carolina Panthers, Nick Mixon. For the second time in franchise history, the Carolina Panthers have come to the threshold of absolute victory. All year long, this team has demonstrated toughness, unity, and an intoxicating joy. Also on colorful display have been the remarkable talents of Cam Newton redefining the position of NFL quarterback. Polarizing? Try unifying. For Panther Nation, the intersection of his life and our lives is an amazing place where all of our football dreams might someday come true. This has been a fairy tale season. Now in the worldwide center ring of Super Bowl 50, the stage is set for a happy ending. Rolling back the clock to 1993 and then right there, 2016. Two career highlight moments, no doubt. For Mick Mixon, who is my guest on Episode 9 of my WBT Century Podcast. Bo Thompson here, and really happy to have a guy whose career I have followed for years on this radio station. But he's been on the station for different reasons at different times. And those two memories we just listened back to, just a couple from the incredible resume, the eclectic resume, as we're about to find out, of Mick Mixon and uh, so many blanks to fill in in between. That's the whole reason for this podcast. 
guest. So, uh, Mick, I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I appreciate you coming in. Any program that gives you the opportunity, Bo Thompson, to talk for longer stretches, I'm a <laughs> fan of, and I'm honored to be on your show. It's, it sounds like a fine thing, and everybody's doing it. Everybody's podcasting. So why not us for a few minutes? Well, and I know you uh, you podcast a good bit, too, because I've uh, checked out the Panthers website, multimedia stuff uh, in recent uh, years or recent months. And there's really been a push amongst the Panthers to, uh, I mean, the output of, of podcasting, period. I think a lot of people listening right now may not know all there is to offer. I think our, I'm proud of our digital social, Bo. I don't understand all of it. I mean, we've got reams of people that are look like they're about 22 years old doing important things and just how fast this has all changed is incredible i know you've mentioned some of the great names and you've had some of them on legendary broadcasters people that that i idolized growing up you know ty boyd and h.a thompson and and uh, so many more at this radio station jim barrel was a good friend of mine mike collins i love that guy and all of us in this this age are shocked to know that for example, with the Panthers, but our social media, let's just take, not to mention any names, let's take Max Henson, for example. Mm-hmm. Max can put a tweet out in five seconds, and in the next 50 seconds, 50,000 people will see it. Your humble correspondent might drive 50 miles to talk to 50 people and then drive 50 miles back and, and check that box. As that, that's a good day at the office because this kind of thing needs to happen, right? The shoe leather, the eyeballs, the give out a few Panther hats and, and fly the colors a little bit. But uh, it is so fascinating how this new brand of communicating uh, has been born and what we're currently doing with it. And I'm much more comfortable asking questions. I'd much rather interview you than have you direct things towards me. But I'll try to box all that up and uh, answer any questions you might have today. Well, you're a little bit older than me, but I think both of us came up in the era of radio where uh, you were still cutting, uh, you know, tape, and you had to use a splicer, and you yeah. had to uh, to reel-to-reel tapes and things like that. Yeah, I'm probably uh, sterile because of the de- de- the tape deraser. <laughs> you remember that thing? Yeah, the, de- yeah, that, that, the that demagnetizer. Horrible contraption. Uh, yeah, I remember that very well. The, the carts that you used to have to yeah. erase and whatnot. But uh, the point I was building towards there was, we came up in an era uh, where things were not as easy as some things are in the digital age to, I mean, like you say, uh, podcasting. There are all different kinds of forms of it. Uh, some people, uh, a podcast is I pick up my phone, I hit record, and boom, I can send it out there. And as you just mentioned, it's amazing to me how quickly something can be distributed out there in, uh, in media land, in digital world. But by the same token, what I love about as I've tried to grasp the whole podcast thing, because I think the analog guys like you and me who started out uh, have had to learn how to embrace the whole podcast thing. But once you get a hold of it, what it really means to me, and this podcast is uh, an example of it, is we can go places and we can reach back to times uh, that would never, ever get the light of day or the sound of an of a amplifier again. That's a great point. Um, if, if we didn't have this new distribution form. So um, I, you and I, I think, I, I don't mean to speak for you, but I think what we're saying is we're learning more about the distribution process and how you get it out there. But the material, uh, this is a whole new way of delivering the material that otherwise might have been dormant somewhere. So that's, I, I, I think we're coming at it from the same, uh, same, same place here. And that's uh, these stories. They're, they're, everybody's got them out there. And people like you, uh, I want to get these stories out. I like the way you said that. 
uh, said not as eloquently, but uh, in a different way, your morning show, a Panther broadcast, neither of those provide the forum, really the format, for the trouble we're probably about ready to get ourselves into. <laughs> well, uh, let's start what I always start uh, when I have a guest here in the Century Podcast uh, studio, and uh, that is... Uh, Mick Mixon, I know you from most recently and currently the Carolina Panthers radio broadcast team, the anchor of that, uh, and then before that, North Carolina Tar Heels alongside Woody Durham. But where did the broadcasting, and I don't even mean career, I mean where did you get the broadcasting bug to begin with? Uh, I was the son of a chemical engineer. My dad was a scientist decorated minimalist. I tell people that I did not grow up in the Great Depression, but my dad tried to simulate it at 2313 Honeysuckle Road in Chapel Hill. He preferred questions where there was one answer, and let's find that answer. So his idea of engaging me, his only son, in uh, meaningful banter was uh, to ask me a question. I remember watching a baseball game once, Yankees and the Red Sox, Tony Quebec and and Joe Gragiola, I think, on the call, or mm-hmm. I can't re- really remember, but I'm watching it as a kid. My dad says, Mickey, if the mound is 60 feet, 6 inches from the plate, and a pitcher throws 100 miles an hour, how long does the batter decide have to decide whether to swing or not? The answer is about four-tenths of a second, but I had to retrofit that into my knowledge because this, I'm looking at my father both thinking, what is wrong? Who, who is this man? Why do I have to have such a nerdy dad? Why can't he be like most dads? All right, come on, son, pitch it right in here. Let me see the high hard one. Let's see what you got. Most dads had lecture quotients. The mention of any subject, camping, how to get from here to Lansing, Michigan, uh, how to tune a carburetor, uh, how to, to get a valve lash adjustment done on an engine, would send them into long lectures. My dad was totally different. He was like Socrates. So that's him. My mother was just the opposite. Sandra Smith Mixon. My parents died young. My, my parents died. Uh, my dad was 57. My mom was 54 when they passed away. They died way too young. But my mother was a rock star. She was beautiful. She was always she was mad at Bette Midler and Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett because she felt like that was who she was going to be all rolled into one. She could <laughs> sing, dance, do voices. When she was in a good mood, the world was happy. Her needle moved because of her emotion, not because of logic, data, meticulous, painstaking, scientific research, trial and error. Mom didn't care what anybody thought. She felt the way she felt. So when I was growing up, I thought to myself, my mother smoked and drank so much during my gestation that I'm not going to be the great athlete. I'm not going to be the relief pitcher. I'm not going to win the Masters. So what can I, how can I be around sports? My mom was the, the daughter of a baseball man, a boxer, a wrestler, old school uh, teacher, mm-hmm. educator. That was her dad. So she was sort of a tomboy. So it was my mom that I gravitated towards to throw the baseball. To, 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 to She understood the hold that a ball, a bat, a glove, a club could hold on a little boy's soul. So ever since I was a little Mickey Mixon growing up in Chapel Hill, I always, ever since I was about 10 years old, all I ever wanted to be was a sports broadcaster. Where did the broadcasting start? Started by me saving my babysitting and lawn mowing money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in a different era, Bo. This was the era where you uh, you got a job as soon as you were 
able. I mean, I was 10, 11, 12. I had a babysitting, lawn mowing, odd jobs around the neighborhood, uh, jobs, a little business that I started. I had a paper route. I had... I rode my bike to the radio station at age 15. I started working at WCHL, my hometown of Chapel Hill. So I had a little folding money, not a lot, but I bought a Webcore cassette tape recorder and then set about interviewing my dog Checkers, my sister, uh, my, my grandmother, my parents, anyone or anything that would hold still. I interviewed them and did practice interviews, practice games, weather, news, all of that. And one of my favorite things to do was to do the play-by-play of every Basket I made on the uh, down on the court where we played basketball. Uh-huh. Every pass I threw in football, every putt I made in golf. I was that kid that I always wondered why my parents drank so much alcohol, and I used to think <laughs> it was their fault, but I realized probably it was me that I would not shut up. That I was constantly saying, "Mickey Mixon, the wily veteran from Chapel Hill, the vascular eleventh grader, draws down on this side hill eight foot putt that if he drains it could propel Chapel Hill High School, the Fighting Tigers, to the sectionals at Durham next week." He's over it; it's on its way. And see, I, I had this in my mind, so I would just say it out loud because it's just what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I could not do it. So, did it start at uh, CHL? Was that the first station you ever worked for? Yes, and then I worked for the campus radio station. I went to school at UNC okay. in Chapel Hill and uh, worked for the campus radio station there and uh, WCHL and just had a blast. I mean, Bo, you're like me. You're a little bit of a junkie in this way. So uh-huh. these lights, so Bo's sitting in front of a console. He's very comfortable, uh, hand uh, jauntily positioned on his chin, <laughs> leaning on his right elbow. And he's very comfortable behind these lights. But these dials, these smells, the smell of coffee, asbestos, radon, cigarette smoke, nicotine, uh, caffeine, uh, equipment, the transmitter, these were the uh, siren smells of my young adulthood. Well, it's funny that you say that because this room, you talk about WCHL, this room that we're in right now, it's called Studio D in this building. I essentially grew up in this room. Uh, and I remember when this room didn't look like this room. It looked. Uh, it used to be the studio that I could always get into because it was the studio that was in the worst shape. And then about 15, 20 years ago, they renovated it, and now it's, it's, it's kind of spiffy looking in here. But I grew up at WBT the way you grew up, sounds like, at WCHL. Um, I oftentimes say to people, it was just by sheer luck of where I was born and how things, but this was the first station I worked for. Mm-hmm. Now, I've since gone and worked for some smaller stations, but uh, a lot of people you talk to, work at the really small station and then work your way up. BT is a pretty established station, but i always be thankful that I, I started screening phone calls for Henry Bogan and interning for Mike Collins back in the day. But, you know, I basically learned the trade in the room we're sitting in right now. And uh, you at WCHL, now give me some perspective on how big a station it was back then. What was the atmosphere like when you started there? CHL aspired to be WBT. We um, one Julian Price place, WBT's address, was mm-hmm. uh, a, a magical-sounding place. I, I would have rather gone there than Disney World as a young kid, and, um, and for good reason, too. And one of the things that I've always respected about your work, Bo, is that you're a production guy. You, like, you value the sounds, the natural sounds, and that captures what radio does so effortlessly, although it's not effortless because it's a lot of work that you, that you know and you do, but if done right— it's intimate. It's personal. It's intoxicating. It draws you in. There's a warmth to it. 
and television is still trying to artificially inseminate a lot of their stadium shows, their studio shows, to try to duplicate what comes so naturally on radio. And, and CHL, you could have flourished at CHL because Jim Hevner, who is one of Ty Boyd's best friends and vice versa, he believed in selling the sizzle. He believed in telling the story, build the drama. It's not enough just to say, you're looking live at Keenan Stadium in Chapel Hill or, you know, hi, everybody, and welcome to Little John Coliseum on the Clemson campus. That's, that's a moral capital offense if that's all you do. Because there are better word choices than that. There are better ways. Everybody does it that way. So do it some way different. There are better ways to set the scene. So the, the creative approach uh, to uh, promotions, to broadcasting. Hevner one time thought of this contest, and I was working there when I was a kid. So they hide the keys to a car from Crow Little Ford on Franklin Street in Chapel Hill. The keys to this brand new Crow Little Ford Ford are hidden somewhere in Chapel Hill, buried. So we're going to give clues every morning on the morning show. Sounds good, right? Mm -hmm. Until people start digging up the entire city. <laughs> Graveyards, parking lots, libraries, uh, <laughs> shopping mall. Everybody thinks they know where the keys are, so the whole town's getting dug up by shovels. But who really cares? It was an idea place. Does that sound a lot like BT in those days to you? Well, you are every time you say a sentence, uh, you I could go down a, a complete podcast mm -hmm. just on that subject. Yes, uh, you mentioned Jim Hevner, and uh, when I was growing up listening to the Tar Heel Sports Network, uh, I always tell the story about how I used to sit at AG Junior High School, and I would wear a long sleeve shirt, and I would wire my headphone from my Walkman through my sleeve and similar to the pose you talked about a few minutes ago, uh, not the hand on the chin, but the hand on the ear. And I'd wire it up so I could look at the teacher and the chalkboard. And little did anybody know that I had this contraption where I could hear Woody and Jim uh -huh. calling the ACC tournament. Um, I've done a good number of interviews now uh, coming up on eight years of hosting mornings here. One of my favorite ones uh, and it wasn't one that I, I, I didn't know how it would turn out because I'd never met the guy before. But when Woody Durham died a few years ago, and we'll certainly get to Woody here in a few minutes, but when he died and I started thinking about how can I do interviews that will be uh, about Woody, obviously, but they'll have a connection to this radio station. And I called Jim Hevner. And I told him, I, I, I listened to you as a kid growing up. I don't know you, but I feel like I know you. And I'd love to talk to you about Woody. And uh, Mick, he, he, we taped about a, gosh, almost a 45-minute interview that I had to edit down and, and you know get it on the air to fit my times. But uh, one of the best interviews, most fun I've ever had talking to somebody, because he talked about how he built the Tar Heel Sports Network. He talked about you, and he talked about Woody. But... Uh, what a treasure of a broadcasting guy. Well, we were delighted to have those games on WBT. As a matter of fact, my recollection is that one of the ways that we wound up getting the network is because Dean Smith wanted the games on WBT in those days because you could hear WBT up through the uh, northeast, and we didn't have cable TV in, in those days, and the station that had been carrying them in Charlotte uh, couldn't be heard, I think, probably across uh, the Catawba River at night. And so Dean wanted the games on BT, and that's sort of how I think we wound up getting the uh, network. But uh, Woody and I had started broadcasting together, I believe, on the network in uh, 1972. And uh, 
it's interesting when he first started. Uh, Bo, you have followed in in the, the footsteps of giants there, and so when you first step into WBT, I suspect you're a little intimidated by being on such a giant station. When I replaced uh, Ty Boyd, good heavens, uh, Ty was my mentor there, and there was no question that I was intimidated by that. And Woody followed the mouth of the South, Charlotte's uh, Bill Curry. And yeah. so when he first got, and Bill Curry had been there for a long time, so I think when he first started, uh, uh, he was, uh, like all the rest of us, intimidated following uh, the mouth of the South. But he found his radio persona, the, the network persona, fairly quickly, at least within a few years. And then after that time, he became, his storytelling became great. He he had a way to take the game and work work a narrative around what he knew. But he was legendary for his preparation. Bo, doing your job on, if, when you, if you've done your job right on the radio and you make it all sound easy, it's probably what you're doing uh, before that time. It's a... It is the uh, pre- show prep, we call it. Yes. And, uh, and Woody's, uh, Woody's game prep left everybody else in the dust. I was always sort of a pain in the butt, I think, for the amount of preparation that I did before kind of any of the broadcasts that we did. And I want to tell you, I never walked into the booth one time ever when I was as prepared as, as uh, Woody was. He could just, uh, he just, oh, he was, he was prepared for every uh, single situation. Hebner could make uh, a Tar Heel Yugoslavian National Exhibition basketball game in late November seem like the national championship, seem like Duke Carolina. He had this gift of making, getting, he would get himself to a place where he'd be welcoming you to what you knew was bound to be some pedestrian average broadcast of a, some exhibition game or some game the Tar Heels were going to win by 30 and he would say and we'll have it all for you next on the ACC today. Along with Woody Durham and our entire Tar Heel Sports Network crew, this is Mick Mixon on the air with the last game of the season, the national championship. Woody here at the Tar Heels, Dean Smith coaches them and this ball club is within one win of the mountaintop. As we say oh, so often, Mick, during the broadcast, uh, go where you have to go and do what you have to do. And reach down for whatever That's it is right. you reach down for. I'm a firm believer in the power of positive thinking, and if all the Tar Heel fans around the, the state and around the nation are all pulling hard together, I think uh, good things will happen in A couple of little things, if I could insert them very quickly. Uh, I know Coach Smith says this is kind of ridiculous, but he has certain things that he does, and believe me, I, I don't do these because I'm superstitious. They just put me in my comfort zone. I've got on my second game suit for the third week in a row. It has a purple tie with some blue in it and a purple uh, handkerchief in the pocket. How was I to know when I got to New Orleans that the media pass tonight was going to be purple for this weekend? And as we were coming over to the arena tonight, Linda Woods, Coach Smith's secretary, coming to handle the tickets for the players, parents, and so forth, informed me that the color of tonight's game ticket is Carolina blue. How about that? You have had that thing dry clean, though, since that uh, regional final, haven't you? You bet I have. So let's roll back for a second here. Uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of things. You're at WCHL. You're starting out your career. You're doing, sounds like, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, whatever they'd let you do. That's the way I was here. Just give me something to do to make me feel like I'm a contributor. Except talk on the air, which was what I wanted to do, but my voice had not changed yet. Puberty uh, still (laughs) eludes me, but even uh, more so in my late teens. But I did get to update the weather line. So I would work all night 
we had these paid programs that would run, these big reels that would come in the mail or uh-huh. albums. You'd have to, to keep the log, and, and I would uh, mark time by, with ice cream sandwiches. I'd eat one ice cream sandwich. <laughs> I'd work a 12-hour shift, and I'd come to work with a dozen <laughs> ice cream sandwiches and very meticulously unwrap like their Willy Wonka golden ticket bars, and I'd eat <laughs> one an hour for 12 hours. Bound to be good for you, right? So that's what I would do, and I would do all of that so that, at 6 o'clock in the morning, I'd get to update the weather line. And you had to call in, call the weather line. And this allowed me to say, and I'm sure what was a very prepubescent little mini Mouse little voice, Chapel Hill and area weather, partly cloudy skies today. You know, I'd do three or four takes to make sure it was okay. And and um, and that was that was it. But it was so much fun. And talented people worked there, Bo. I mean, a lot like, uh, like I said, a little mini BT. Bob Holliday, uh, Jim Lampley. Warren Levinson, Tom Egger, Dick Hungate. Uh, we had a uh, very, very talented run of people. Ron Stutz, who was a morning man there for a long, long time. And they set, they set high standards. And I, I, I went to work every day that I worked at CHL not wanting to let those people down. Well, it's, uh, it's so funny to hear you say about reading the weather line because – Almost the exact same thing was my existence here. The first few years I was in high school and I would come in here and I would run the board and uh, I didn't get to say anything except it's 17 degrees (laughs) at News Talk 1110 WBT, your official weather station. And that was my moment, and, I, and that's all they'd let me do. But, you know, someday, way down the line, it would, it would uh, expand beyond that. But So you're at WCHL, and you, you start your career, and then are you, are you in high school at that point or college? Or, or, and, and I assume you went to North Carolina, right? I'm from Chapel Hill, yes. Yeah. So I, I did it all right there in, in my hometown. I don't, I'm not trying to export this as, as wise in any way, but it's just where I, is where I wanted to go to school, and, mm-hmm. I'm, and everybody has to be from somewhere. So, of course. Uh, so I did all that right there, and so I worked at CHL uh, through my freshman year at Carolina and then started working for the campus radio station a little bit and, and just enjoyed so much of it. Uh, the, the fertile opportunities were there to learn and make mistakes, and, and I did women's basketball on the campus radio station. I did high school football reports on WCHL, covered uh, different things, and uh, not that anybody's uh, really interested in how I got started, but uh, but that was pretty much it right there. So I saw, uh, I was looking up a few things because uh, I wanted to make sure I was prepared for this interview, but you had a stop at WCGC in Belmont, is that right? Oh, gosh, yes. When I was in college, I had about four months, three months left to graduate. And I heard from a buddy of mine from Gastonia, Bill Keith, who knew a guy named Mike Sumner, who had been a UNC grad who'd started a little ad agency in Gaston County, that a man named Eb Gant, this 400-pound decorated broadcaster who ran WCGC, was getting too a little bit too heavy and a little bit too immobile to do the games. And that he might be looking. Sumner told Bill to tell me to call Eb Gant. So with three months to go in my last semester of my senior year at Carolina, and by the way, Bo, my dad said, son, you can take as long as you want to to finish college. The financial aid will be eight consecutive semesters. So don't think you're going to be studying abroad <laughs> or, you know, taking the, the delay in this at all. If, if so, you're doing it on your own dime. Right. So a little bit of pressure on me to complete uh, the coursework in eight semesters and, and work at the radio stations and all, and also, you know, do the other things you want to do when you're in college. But it all worked out well. So I called Eb Gant. Drove down there, and I said, Mr. Gant, if you'll give me, I'll work for free 
I graduate on Saturday, May the 11th, 1980. I'll move to Belmont on Sunday, May 12th, 1980. On Monday, May 13th, 1980, I'll start working here. And I'll work here for two months. If you're not happy with my performance, then you'll owe me nothing. I guarantee you that I can sell advertising. I guarantee you that I'll do these games. I'll guarantee you that you'll be proud of me. And, of course, I'm totally brimming with confidence, but nearly void of any meaningful experience. He says, son, I don't care if two midgets are having a fist fight in the parking lot of McDonald's. If you can sell advertising, then you can broadcast that live on this radio station. So we'll see you on May the 13th. And that was all I needed to hear. So I moved to Gaston County, and I created an electronic blizzard for 19 months. I broadcast dirt track car racing, amateur boxing, Pop Warner football, junior midget football, church league softball, high school football, high school basketball. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, Legion baseball. <laughs> and Cricket. <laughs> anything, anything I could. And and sold advertising to try to pay for my own salary. Right. And totally got my rear end kicked selling ads up one side of Wilkinson Boulevard and down the other. Uh, that was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. But I was motivated by the special strength of the shameless. And I had to do games on the air. And I had to have sponsors. And so... Um, did whatever I could to get people to sponsor my broadcast. Then after WCGC, then what? I got a job in Columbia at WIS Radio, where Mike Collins uh-huh. had done the morning show. Right. And Mike has some roots down there, a fantastic radio station. I went to work there. I left WCGC February 22nd, 1982, moved to Columbia February 23rd, which was a Sunday, 1982. And on Monday, February 24th, 1982, you can check all these dates and they'll check out I started working at WIS Radio in Columbia. They had, Bo, 49 people on the staff. At WCGC, we had seven people on the staff. Mm -hmm. And two of them were part-time. But WIS is rolling. I mean, it's humming in the early 80s. Losing money, but with a seven-person news department. We covered everything politically. Uh, Water main breaks on a uptown street. We got a news car. We got a plane circling it. I mean, it was just a glory days of of radio. Full service AM radio station, a lot like this one here. And Bob McAllister, I should have been afraid of him because he was the Vince Lombardi, the Ed Asner, the Lou Grant, this gruff, profane news director, blood and guts McAllister. And the entire newsroom was terrified of him. But I was too dumb and naive to know that I should have been terrified of him as well. Everybody else called him Mr. McAllister. Dumb old me, I call him Bob. No one fished for compliments around Bob McAllister. You didn't do it. Me, I ran headlong into that. that Sounds like you were, you were too busy to, to even notice the, what was going on around you. I guess, but I, I respect Bob McAllister remains. If we end our podcast right now and no one hears anything more that I say, then I want it to be heard that I respected this man more than any parent, any teacher, any coach, any employer, all added together. Because he respected me enough to tell me what I most desperately needed to know, even when it wasn't very comfortable or very flattering for me to hear it. Is Bob still living? He is still living. He was the most profane, I mean, elevated cursing to a new (laughs) art form. He he got out of broadcasting several years after I stopped working for WIS, and then he had a religious conversion and ministered, may still do it, to death row inmates down in South Carolina. But uh, Bob 
sent me to Hilton Head one time, Bo, to cover the Heritage Golf Tournament. Mm-hmm. I had $500 in petty cash, had a hotel reservation, had a schedule of reports, seven reports, Wednesday through Sunday. So drive down there, do these reports, and come back. I get back, and dumb old me, I go in there to his office Monday morning. I was doing morning sports. And after the Heritage, I said, hey, Bob, how'd you like my reports? Pretty good, huh? He said, come in here for a second. Close that door. I closed the door. He said, Mickey, sit down. I sat down. He said, your reports were good. You did a good job. You didn't wreck the news car. You came back with 380 of the $500 in petty cash. Your reports were well-written. You voiced them well, and they had good actualities. But you didn't do a great job. Would you like to know how you could have done a great job? And I said, um, I guess so. <laughs> he, and my, Bob wasn't a sports fan, Bo, but he looks off out his window of his office at WIS in Columbia, and he... Then he looks back at me and he said, what's life like on the PGA Tour for, for caddies? What's the divorce rate on the PGA Tour? What's the, what is the environmental impact of the runoff into the estuaries of all the fertilizer that they use at Harbortown to get that golf course looking green? Is there a fitness trailer? Where do meals come from? Where do players stay when they come in town? Son, I'm trying to run a radio station here. You're down there doing your schedule of reports. That's what we paid you to do. But I got an hour news block at noon. I got an hour and a half news block in the morning, an hour and a half news block from 5 to 6.30 at night. And, and you contributed absolutely zero to those. So don't come in here with your, yeah, you, you, yeah, yeah, my report sounded good, didn't they, Bob? You did a good job. You didn't do a great job. Now get out of here. So I've just taken all the curse words out. But imagine that same thing. Mm-hmm with x rating on it and technically in a podcast we could have included those but i'd rather not so thanks me too <laughs> so back then the masters followed the heritage yeah so i had the same schedule of reports the same news car the same 500 dollars from yvonne trotter in, in the business office to go down to stay at a hotel in north augusta and cover the masters well i went to augusta national lower than a snake belly in a rut but i was determined to prove to Bob McAllister that I had better fabric than just good. So I interviewed every person that moved in Augusta for a whole week. I interviewed Tiny, the 400-pound, 300-pound security guard that covered the press tent. I found out I interviewed Fred Couple's wife. I interviewed Ben Crenshaw's wife. I Everybody that, that moved, I was calling back doing stories. And when I got back, I was, I was tired. I mean, I was beyond tired. I'm probably 25 years old. I'm exhausted. Uh, came to work Monday morning to do morning sports and I remember thinking I'm not asking no compliments from Blood and Gus McAllister he, he can talk to me if he wants to so I'm typing he comes in about 7.20 hangs his hat up, hangs his coat up goes in his office, I'm saying heck with him so I'm typing my sports and then I, I see a shadow over my typewriter and I look back over my shoulder and it's McAllister and he looks down at me and he said Mickey, great job at Augusta and then he closed the little sliding glass door that we all had. And I just about started crying right there on my typewriter. Now, do I do a great job every time or any of the time since then? No, I'm sure I don't. Doing a great job is hard to do, very hard. But Bob McAllister showed me the difference between good and great. And for that, I'll, I owe him a debt I'll never be able to square up. Greatest compliment of your career? Would that be? Yeah. Or maybe the most influential phrase of of praise or by a wide margin it was and i've been lucky that people have taken an interest in me and mr richardson jim hevner other people that have put their faith and trust in me to to represent an organization to do the job on and off the air and i'm humbled by 
uh, people who have uh, done that with me and for me. But for for Bob McAllister to um, teach me what he tried to teach me when he himself was busy, he didn't have time to mentor me. And that's what touched me so much about him. I I guess it would be accurate to say, Mick, that when you still to this day go on the air for a Carolina Panthers broadcast or whatever broadcast it may be, Bob McAllister is the standard that you're still trying to hit proverbially? Think about him all the time, and especially in the preparation end on the hotel room and trying to – because doing the games is a joy. The Mm -hmm. preparation part can be a little lonely because uh, it's it's, um, it's just – Ideally, at least for me, if done correctly or the way I, I like to do it, it's uh, you need some alone time. And I think about Bob McAllister a lot in those moments. I loved it down there. I didn't realize I was going to stay there that long, but I had a great time. And and uh, and and then um, I, I got the fire that I wanted to do. I, I wanted to leave there. I felt like I was kind of stagnating a little bit there, and I started interviewing for. Um, minor league baseball jobs mm-hmm. i love broadcasting baseball and it hit me that that's what i wanted to do so i heard that in maine uh there was an opening for the triple a maine guides philadelphia phillies triple a affiliate in old orchard beach maine so i called this man this humorless little man named jordan Cobritz, <laughs> and he had a law degree from cornell and a cpa degree from georgetown and a couple other degrees and this brilliant businessman but very, very humorless individual, at least to my ears back then. And um, I, uh, he said, I'm right ready to hire. I've interviewed two other people, both of whom have AAA experience. You don't have AAA experience. So unless your tape knocks my socks off, then I'm going to hire. You're free to send me a tape, but I'm going to hire one of these other two guys. I said, Mr. Cobras, I will fed. I will Federal Express. A, a tape will leave here tomorrow morning by 10 a.m. And do not hire anyone until you hear my tape. And he says, okay. So I stayed up all night. And when I say all night, I mean all night. The sun came up with me working on this tape. Mm-hmm. I, I decided to try to imprint in his mind that he'd already hired me. So the, the I did a couple of promos with me already being the – I took mental possession of the job. So you got some hot music that plays, and you have me saying, hi, this is Mick Mixon, voice of the Maine guides. When it comes to spring and summer excitement in, in the state of Maine, there is nothing that can rival Maine guides baseball. And then you hear this play-by-play. This play play. Greg Leg leans in, waiting, swing, and there's a drive over third. <laughs> so I do all this, produce it up like you would do, Bo Thompson, the producer. So I do two promos, and then I do a couple of innings of a college game that I thought was representative, and I type a letter, Federal Express it all, I get it all, and, I, and at about 3.30 in the morning, I called Delta Airlines, and I booked myself a flight to Portland, Maine, the next week, leaving on a Tuesday, leaving Columbia Tuesday morning about 10 a.m., and in my cover letter, I say that to, make, to help him make doubly sure he hires the right person for this important job, I've booked myself a flight. Delta flight 1013, I'll be arriving, and I paid 350 bucks. I didn't have $350, but I bought myself a plane ticket and FedExed it all to Maine. Next day, 3.30 in the afternoon, my phone rings. WIS Sports, Mick speaking. And this little man, this troll of a man says, <laughs> is this Forrest Orion Mixon third?" <laughs> so I knew it was him. I knew he got my tape. I said, yes, it is. And he said, this is Jordan Kubritz, and your tape did not knock my socks off. Huh. It did, however, dislodge one of my shoes. (laughs) 
Wow. He said, but you got three strikes. No, he said, you got two strikes against you. And I said, what? What's strike number one? My heart's beating like a hummingbird, even now telling you this story. I had to have this job. He says, first of all, you misspelled my name in your cover letter. And I went, oh, God, that just crushed me. Because who doesn't pride themselves on the detail like we would do, right? Right. He says, it's Cobritz, not Corbitz. And I say, well, that's one strike. And I apologize. What's the second strike? He said, the second strike is any person who goes through life with the name of Forrest Orion Mixon III already has a strike against them in life. <laughs> and I said, well, last time I checked the rule book, you needed three strikes to strike out. And he said, are you serious about this flight? And I said, are you inviting me up for an interview? And he said, are you serious about this flight? And he says, are, I said, are you inviting me up? We did three times we did that. Right. <laughs> he says, oh, hell, I guess we'll have Mitch, a clubhouse guy, pick you up. And then click, he hung up. So I get on a plane. I took some, some of my baseball card collection, put it in. I had a presentation. Mm-hmm. Nope, this is way before PowerPoint, 1987. So I got, I got okay, here's, my, here's how serious I am about baseball. Here's my baseball card collection. Here's some articles I've written. Here's letters that people saying that, they, that I do a good job. And um, got the gig. Wow. Moved to Maine. I could write a book, 275 pages right now. I could write it right now just on stories that happened in six months in Maine. Six months. Well, that was my next question. How long did you stay there? Six, six months. months. And then, then what was next? My boss, lost, Jordan Kobritz, lost his team in court. Wow. It, the Maine guides went belly up then and became the scranton Wilkesbury Red Barons. So I fly to the winter meetings, talk to a guy named Bill Terlecki, go through my same presentation with him, and they end up hiring this local guy. So I didn't get that job, and I was somewhat disappointed by not getting to continue because I could feel, when you're at AAA, you can feel the big leagues. I mean, you're not in the big leagues, but it's an airplane league, coat and tie. We fly everywhere. Um, We had a a little bit of a statewide network. I did some games on TV. And uh, but I didn't get the Scranton Wilkesbury job. Moved back to Columbia, and then got a letter about two months later from Jim Hevner, right out of the blue, saying you want to come to Chapel Hill and work on these games with Woody. So we have gotten to the point uh, that I knew we would. I didn't know quite how we'd get to it. I didn't know it would involve Maine. I didn't know it would involve AAA baseball. But the Tar Heel Sports Network, and before we go down this road, uh, I, I alluded earlier to listening to those games as a kid. And I got to tell you, Mick, um, when I look back at the things that made me want to be in this business, and like we said, I've always been equally interested in, hey, sure, everybody wants to talk behind the microphone and hear themselves on the air. That's all fine and good. But it always fascinated me how the, the sausage was made, the music. I can remember the Tar Heel Sports Network, every one of the different themes over the years <laughs> yeah. in my head right now. Uh, and in my opinion, now I haven't heard every single college uh, radio broadcast that there's ever been. Did but you know Kyle Whitford? Does that the, name ring the, a bell? The, the name sounds familiar. Yeah, he was a great production guy from back then. But anyway, go ahead. Go I ahead. don't think there is, has ever been a college sports network that has gotten the imaging and the theater of the mind and the craft of sound as well as the Tar Heel Sports Network did and still does. And, and talking to you uh, on so many levels for so many different reasons... This is just 
really fun for me because it's so much of what kind of galvanized me wanting to be in this business. And, of course, those games were on WBT. And we've heard the stories about how Dean Smith used WBT as as part of one of his tools for recruiting because the 50,000-watt blowtorch, when the lights turn off at night, you can hear it like a network all the way up and down the East Coast. So you get a letter from the Tar Heel Sports Network was that like getting a letter from the home office? Was this the place you'd always dreamed of someday being, or or how did that all come about? No, because I'm from Chapel Hill, and I felt like I did not want to go. I did not want to be back in. I felt like I'd already done Chapel Hill. That's my hometown. I grew up there, worked there, went to school there. So I wanted to go to baseball. I had a tape. I'd sent a tape to Las Vegas, the Las Vegas Stars. I'd, I'd sent. I had some other baseball tapes out, and that's what I wanted to do. And I okay. thought. Okay, this will be okay. I'll, I'll move back to Chapel Hill and, um, and and do it for a year, and then I want to get back into baseball. And then uh, the summer, let's see, about a week before I started on WCHL, my, uh, my mother and father were killed in a commercial airline crash. There was a United DC-10, United Flight 232, that crashed in a cornfield in Sioux City, Iowa. My parents were on that flight, and so... My world kind of changed. I, I had for my sister and me when that happened in mid-July of 1989. No, yeah, 1989. You know, my sister and I we had to to think about family things and sell their house and settle the estate and all the things that that you have to do. And so um, I forgot all about baseball. I just tried to concentrate on doing the best job I could at UNC, working with Woody. Learned so much working with Woody and Hebner, and. Hebner always used to say, we know the Tar Heel Sports Network. We know we're a pain in the ass. We know we travel with more equipment. We get there earlier. We pull more cable. We, we put mics on the goalposts. We put mics on the basket standards. We want our own natural sound. But we want to be a classy pain in the ass. We want people to respect us, even though they might not like that we get there early and sit at midcourt and maybe take up a little bit of a footprint. Now, I was proud of that. I was proud to rep- help represent UNC for those years. 16 seasons alongside of Woody. So uh, now you started there in 1989, you say? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't immediately that you were on the air, was it? I can't remember. When, when, mm-hmm. did, when you started at, at, at the Tar Heel Sports Network, were you, did you take over immediately for Hevner, or when did that happen? Yeah, Hevner was getting a little bit tired of doing it, and uh, they had a couple other people that they were sort of piecemeal. So Hevner's idea was, here's a guy... He looked at me and said, okay, we can pay him not a lot of money and get a lot of work out of this guy. We can throw a saddle over him and ride him till he drops and have him host the pregame show, host the halftime show, be the color analyst for Woody, uh, tote some equipment, help Paul Boone set up equipment. So, uh, so that seemed like a good deal to me, so that's what we did. See, this is interesting, because I always assumed you being a Chapel Hill guy and a CHL guy and growing up there and going to Carolina, that uh, this would be the Mecca job, the the working for the Tar Heel Sports Network. And I hear you saying that working there was an honor, but I also hear you saying that that's not how you grew up. That wasn't the, the, the end game, necessarily. I felt like, right, in the beginning. Now, once you know, once I got kind of oiled up and, 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 and doing it, it was... It was great, and then I was able to. I started a band. I got uh, I taught some classes in the UNC School of Journalism, Mass Communications. I was able to kind of expand, do some other things other than just. You're absolutely right, Woody. Now back to you. Right. And 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 I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed every second of doing that. But in the beginning, it's not really. I just viewed it as a, a temporary thing. I hadn't 
you can't you try to plan your life, but then it doesn't work out that way. So that's what so it was. You start out there, you're with Woody Durham. What was Woody Durham to you before you got there? And then we'll talk about working with him. I ran the board on WCHL when I was a boy, like I said, got to do the weather line. Part of what I did was run the board for the Tar Heel Sports Network. WCHL was the originating station. So other stations, what that means is other stations took their feed from WCHL. Yeah. So if I, 16-year-old Mickey Mixon, if I didn't run a tight board, then no one could. So I prided myself on being good with the, the, the technical part of running the board. What does running the board mean? That means levels. It means back timing. It means when Woody Durham would say, from the Carrier Dome in Syracuse with the Tar Heels up seven with 7.07 to play in the game, let's pause 10 seconds for station identification on the Tar Heel Sports Network that not too soon, but not too late, you hit the 10-second ID bed. This is eerie for me because one of the first jobs that I had was running the board for the Carolina Panthers games, which at that point in time were a joint uh, broadcast effort between WBT and the Capital Sports Network. Mm-hmm. And so at that point in time, the pregame show was produced out of here. Mm-hmm. And so the board operator would take his cues from David Langton. And so what you were doing in the pregame show was going out to all the network stations. And so, like you say, this high school kid, Bo, was pushing this button and back timing this. And then we had traffic and we had to back time the delay even. Yep. And so it, it's, it's really interesting to hear you say that. And also from the standpoint that the morning show that I do right Right now, the first full-time job I ever had here was the board operator for that show when Al Gardner arrived. <laughs> That's wild. In 1997, but I love hearing you say this because I think, you know, I always think to myself, I can look around the room in the morning over there, and I've done every job in that room, so I know what they're going through, and I have empathy for what they're going through, but I understand how it all gets put together. And that's what I hear you saying. When you finally assume the role beside Woody Durham, speaking behind that microphone, uh, nobody knew how all of that comes together like you because you'd done it. Well, it was um, it was fun. And I, I, I we, you and I share that DNA. And so everyone, a couple times a year on the, the Panthers games, I'll give a shout out to all the board ops. Yep. Just because that was me. That was uh, I know there's somewhere out there there's a 16-year-old kid with acne and and hadn't even sniffed his first date yet because he's in the radio station because that's where he wants to be. Uh, we appreciate it. You know, we appreciate the, mm-hmm. what the guys and gals and girls uh, do who who help run the board. It can be a thankless job, but working with Woody Bow, man, w- what an immense personality and very very gifted at at what he did. Woody was um, Woody was superstitious. Woody believed that there were metaphysical forces at work in the universe that would conspire to have the free throw lip out if he, Woody Durham, didn't have the four-color pen that the Tar Heels had won four straight games with. So he and I were very different in a lot of ways, but I think we uh, hopefully we made it work okay. You guys were as complimentary uh, a, a unit, a duo, in my opinion, as I've ever heard on the radio uh, doing play-by-play and color commentary. Um, and you're different. You're exactly right. But but and I thought Jim Hefner was marvelous at what he did. He was different. Uh, the same way that and we'll get to this a little bit later, but the same way the Carolina Panthers radio network in 2020 is a lot different than it was in 1995. But the pieces that were assembled in each incarnation, I think, uh, really complemented each other. So did you ever think 
back when Mick is coming up in the business and living in Chapel Hill and working in the early days of the station, did you ever think that you would be working alongside Woody? Uh, no, not really. Because I, I, I didn't want – I wanted to go away somewhere else. I, I didn't, mm. didn't want to stay in Chapel Hill. But I, I loved working with Woody and learned so much f- from working with him. And Woody was – you know, Woody, behind the scenes, Woody Durham was kind of an acquired taste. Woody was very serious. He, he, he himself would tell you that, you know, he would describe it as his game face, that, that he, he did not, certain times he did not want to joke around. He did not do real, real humor. I believe stridently, Bo, that the quality of Woody's life was affected by whether the Tar Heels won or lost. I believe with everything I got, that a huge part of Woody, of who Woody was, was what he did. The, the shelves, the airwaves are full of uh, psychologists, everyone from Oprah to Dr. Phil to other people there that, that have other successful books and tapes that say, don't let what you do be who you are. Woody didn't believe that at all. He couldn't understand if he met somebody that didn't put everything they had into what they did. It didn't make any sense to him in his mind. So those years calling Tar Heel games, are there particular moments that uh, immediately come to mind when you think back during that era of years you called those games? <laughs> I mean, I, I know that's a really need, difficult question to, we to kind of caterers, We need caterers. Uh, we need makeup. We need, I need to go to the bathroom if we're going to tell <laughs> some of the moments. Uh, my favorite moments of those days don't have anything to do with bowl games won, national championships won, key free throws that were hit, confetti raining down on our heads. What I, what I remember most and most fondly and most vividly are – the, the airports, the hotel rooms, the press rooms, the travel, the practice fields, the just the talking, the visiting that you do. Woody and I, we traveled hundreds of thousands of miles together. We traveled to Germany together, Spain, Hawaii, maybe five times, Alaska. So you work with a guy that long, you get to be about half as nutty as he is. <laughs> the days when North Carolina, NC State... Wake Forest and Duke are all good. That's always that's good for the conference, and those are the the glory days. Uh, you you called some North Carolina Duke games back in that era that were uh, they'll never be replicated. Oh gosh, I mean that was the Eric, the bloody Montrose yeah. game. Um, I was talking to a group of people in uh, Pinehurst a couple weeks ago, and a lot of UNC and Duke fans in the in the in the crowd. It was a brick uh, triangle bricks customer appreciation dinner so they're desperate for a guest speaker so they invite my bride and me to come in so we did so they wanted to hear some tales from the press box so i was telling them about this game and you know we had we were sponsored back then by a meat packing company from out of greensboro called curtis meat packing they made these hot dogs called beef master franks you remember you ever <laughs> yeah. heard that and so now be a great time for a beef master frank so, you know, you're always looking for opportunities to get sponsor mentions in. So this one particular Duke-Carolina game, Thursday night game, top-ranked Duke, second-ranked Carolina. Middle of the second half, Cameron Indoor Stadium, the hothouse, the bandbox. I mean, the intensity in this little gym is incredible. And we come back. It's a tight game. And we come back from a commercial break. So I would normally welcome us back. So back live on the Tar Heel Sports Network, Cameron Indoor Stadium, Duke 68, Carolina 67, Tar Heels inbound baseline. I start to give some of the stats. And all of a sudden, this, this roar of the crowd comes up, like 72,000 fans. And, and the game hadn't started yet. I knew something was up. So I looked down from our rafters. I looked down on the court. 
And there is a man, a skinny, six-foot-tall dude with long hair, wearing nothing except blue finger paint all over his, Duke blue finger paint all over his entire (laughs) body and white Converse high-top Chuck Taylor tennis shoes. A streaker. I look over at Woody thinking, okay, Woody's the voice of the Tar Heels. Surely he'll, and Woody just has, it looks like he's been embalmed. He's just, (laughs) his mouth is a perfect oval. His eyes are wide out. He's not, he's got his reading glasses down low on his nose and he's just staring at the streaker. Can't believe it. So someone has to say something, right? So I start doing the play-by-play. I say, oh, the the humanity, there's a streaker. (laughs) And he's wearing nothing but dark blue finger paint. And the streaker cuts to the left, and the big, fat security guard misses him. And he cuts to the right, and another big, fat security guard misses him. And so they finally tackle him under the goal to our right. And Woody still is not saying anything. So they drag the streaker off, and I say, since it is... Prior to 11 o'clock, I'm not at liberty to tell you exactly what the streaker looked like, but I can tell you that now would be a great time for a Beefmaster Frank. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, well, like you say, we could uh, we could do three hours on just your era there uh, for the Tar Heel Sports Network. But So you're there from 1989 to 2005, mm-hmm. right after the Tar Heels won that uh, that 2005 championship against Illinois, correct? Correct. All right, so I remember being here, and I've always wanted to ask you this, and now I finally get my chance as we uh, make the segue from Tar Heels to Panthers. But all these years I'd listened to you, and now I get a little more background on what you did before you worked for the Tar Heels, but it was baseball. Uh, all the years you worked for the Tar Heels, you were the color commentator. And so the Panthers, and Bill Rosinski leaves the Panthers in in 2005, and everybody's wondering who's going to be the new play-by-play guy for the Panthers. And you were never somebody that I considered because I I thought of Mick as the color commentator to the play-by-play guy, uh, Woody Durham. And then when they made the announcement, I thought, oh, well... Okay, I haven't heard Mick do play-by-play before. Uh, had you done play-by-play to a large degree before the Panthers, or how did that transition come about? Because, hey, I love you guys and the Panthers that I know today. There was a bit of an adjustment in my head, having listened to Tar Heels and have you in one role, and then all of a sudden here you are over here in this new role, and I've always wondered how that whole dynamic came to be. Well, thanks for asking that. This, this is what you need to know about about me, Bo. Is that I, I'm not a, I'm not on social media. I believe that broadcasters are the conduit through which notoriety travels. I do not like the self-referential style. Woody used to keep a record of how many games he had done. Uh-huh. He's not the only one, but he's one that would keep a record of how many games he had done. Today marks my 1,000th game on the Tar Heel Sports Network, and I, I don't think. That's just not my style. I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but I don't believe in a signature, a hokey signature touchdown call. I just think that the game should tell you what word choices to make. So set against that backdrop. I believe that if you can do baseball, and I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about you, any any broadcaster, mm-hmm. any young man or woman. You bring me anybody of any age that can do a baseball game on the radio, then then that's, in my opinion anyway, that's like O-positive blood. That's the universal donor of sports announcing. I could plug that person into a golf tournament, tennis, lacrosse, soccer, hockey, football, basketball, and they'll be able to do a good account 
they should be able to call a good game because they will understand certain laws of broadcasting physics that are accelerated, in my opinion, in the Petri dish of baseball. I thought when the Panthers first reached out to me that at best I'd be a long shot Mm -hmm. because I did not have that NFL. I didn't have a tape where I could say, okay, here's me doing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or here's me doing the Detroit Lions. I did not have a tape where I could say, here's me doing Tar Heel football because Woody did almost all that. Right. I had some other things that I could let my future employer hear, but I had no no naivety about uh, about my chances about getting the job. I figured they they may like me, they may want to kick the tires on it, but when it all when the sun sets on it, there'll be tremendous pressure on the Carolina Panthers to hire somebody who has the NFL play by play experience. So the baseball, whether it be at WCGC or whether it be in the early days of your, I say childhood, but, you know, formative years in broadcasting or the main six months, that baseball is what, as you look at it, gave you the, the ability, the, the wheelhouse to be able to call just about anything. Is that is that a that correct statement? I guess. I mean, other others would have to comment on whether uh, our broadcast is uh, whether they like the sound of it or not, or whether they think my colleagues and I call a good game. I'm, my hope is that they do, but my personal opinion is that the baseball, the the thousands of hours of baseball, yeah. high school football, working alongside of Woody, covering other sports, doing some television, is what gave me the confidence to know that I could do it, or at least I believe that I could do a good job here if I were given the opportunity. Well, I hope you understand that my question comes from a place of respect and uh, admiration and all, because it does. Uh, But I I guess when you made that transition, and you seemed to make it so seamlessly, but yet I had never known you in that role before, I thought to myself, wow, what a multifaceted, what an ability to be able to pivot from being the color commentator for one of the most uh, respected and storied uh, basketball programs and broadcasts, and then you turn around and do uh, an NFL gig, whatever it is, at any team in the league. There are not that many of them, uh, and you slid over here. And you know, the Jim Zoki, obviously, uh, I know this. I work with them every day. Zoke uh, makes anybody's job that much easier because he's a great compliment. But Zoki was doing already what you had done for so many years for the Tar Heels. So uh, that you had to come in, and Zoki's already there, and he's an established guy, and of course. Uh, you guys bring in Eugene, uh, who was a completely different guy than Roman Gabriel had been. But I always tell people, uh, I love the original incarnation of the Panthers broadcast team for different reasons. Uh, with you guys, you guys over the years became, to me, the guys that are, are three guys sitting in a den watching the game together and describing what you saw, uh, as well as anybody I've ever heard do it. But uh, So the, the question about how did you make the transition was one coming from the point of, Wow, that's pretty amazing to be able to to jump from one storied broadcast program to another the way that you did. I appreciate it, Bo. Coming from you, that means a lot. I uh, I can't talk like like Bill can. I'd love to be able to. There are other broadcasters that that have the the uh, the the deep resonant you know ten five touchdown. It's it's just it's great. I mean, I can't uh, talk like they can, but my 
belief is that there's no reason why my colleagues and I cannot create a meeting place that we can't create because because I feel like I want to I'm, I don't really care who makes the good point. I don't care. I'm not an, a minute counter. I'm not an airtime counter. I, I want to involve the Zoke on the broadcast. He's earned that. He's very talented. I want to involve my color, the, the sideline reporter, the color analyst. And so I'm not one that I don't take up a lot of time with starting lineups when the game begins. I don't do a lot of heights and weights and hometown and in his fifth year out of Alabama from Muscle Shoals. I mean, that stuff is there if we need it. But um, I, I, I like to, as quickly as I can when the game begins, get, get the other people involved. But I hear Jim Hevner in you when you used to – you talked earlier about when you would uh, start the Tar Heel broadcast. I was listening to one of your intros to a Tar Heel game the other night getting ready for this interview, and I thought to myself, nobody – paints the picture and kind of gives you the 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 uh the atmosphere of the scene like Mick Mixon does and you do the same thing at the beginning of every Carolina Panthers broadcast and I can tell that first you know 15 30 seconds that is something that you kind of get ready in your head and then I mean I'm assuming you correct me if I'm wrong but you have that narrative that you kind of prepare to start the game and then then it goes off in its own direction. So tonight from Uptown Charlotte, it is simple. Carolina needs to trust it, put the pedal to the floorboard, and see what kind of horsepower we've got under this blue and black hood. So happy new year, and hell yes, the playoff party is underway. Let's make ourselves at home and stay for a while. Oh, my I've never goodness. heard Mick swear before. <laughs> my goodness, Mick, you're absolutely right. Panthers have come west with designs on a national stage. A win here means validation. It means respect and it means another key step in the Panther process. Well, they're all here with their green and gold and their rich history and their heads of cheese, the 6-1 Green Bay Packers. Today is an early November battle for NFC supremacy, a game with a playoff-like feel to it. These are the riffraff Atlanta Falcons. And when they come up I-85 and pull into our driveway, they know they are not welcome here. Go back down to I-85. <laughs> it's a rival game. It is, no, this is a rival game, no doubt about that. Tonight from Mile High Stadium in Denver, the Carolina Panthers begin their courtship of the 2016 World Championship. The dance floor is open. The music's about to start, so come on in. It's opening night on the Carolina Panthers radio network. Well, I feel as though the, the broadcast... This is just this is just you know my I'm the one who's on your podcast so there's no other person <laughs> I can turn to for this in their opinion but when an NFL game begins that that is a big deal mm-hmm. if it's if we don't think that it is how can we expect the millennial brain the Gen X the Gen Z the Gen Y brain how can we expect young adultlings who whose attention span has been chopped and diced and pureed like in a vegematic to hang with us for a few minutes. If we ourselves don't try to give them a reason of here's where we think the significant action is going to be. Here's why this game merits your attention. Knowing that you got a busy life, knowing that you're going to be in and out of your car on this Sunday, knowing that you're you're being your time is be there's a war being waged for your time. But if you can give us just spend a little time with us. If you do, you're going to hear people who like and respect one another. You're going to hear people that care passionately about the Carolina Panthers. And you're going to hear people who are prepared to talk to you about this sporting event for the next three hours. Did you ever think that you would be an NFL play-by-play guy early in your career? No, not not really. But because, uh, I, like I said, I, I like storytelling. I like the, the baseball 
component, how yeah. baseball has – baseball has it, – it, if you think about baseball, but it stops after every pitch to allow a radio man to to say something, to build the drama, to talk about a character, to to focus on the game, the strategies, the nuances, the whether this is a good count to hit and run on, whether a delay double steal might be on, or uh, to – go off script to tell any other kind of story too. Football is kind of similar, not really cuz you're only we're only on the air if the Panthers don't go to the playoffs. We got 20 of these in a year, four preseason, 16 regular season. Baseball 160 game schedule. Obviously there's more more time to tell your stories, but uh but I love uh my job and I every every game that's uh, really every Rotary Club, every Optimist Club, every MC and uh, banquet, every anything we do, I think someone, if anyone ever hears me complain about the privilege of representing the Carolina Panthers in the community and on the air, then please just punch me in the head. Well, one thing that is evident to me, I've been doing these Century Podcasts for a while now, one thing that's evident here is that I'm not going to have time to get into everything I want to get into because I had things I wanted to talk about in my head. And like then, what? Give me one more thing. Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I would like to spend more time uh, talking about uh, favorite games and favorite moments during both Carolina Panther and, and Carolina Tar Heel era. We'll do that another time. Yeah. Give me another thing. What's one more thing? Well, I'll tell you my last question here. Uh, this is my last question with everybody, essentially. Uh, you're here on this legendary station. We talked about what it means to you, what it means to me. It turns 100 years old in 2022. And from your perspective... In Charlotte, calling games for the Panthers, and if, if if anything extends beyond this earlier with the Tar Heels, that's fine too. But I'm curious, Mick Mixon, how do you see the city of Charlotte? How has it evolved since you started doing what you're doing right now to where we are in in almost uh, 2022? I don't know. I'd have to go back a little farther because when I was a kid, when I was in college, I remember the 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 notion of Charlotte being a sports town mm-hmm. was a joke, because then you had Charlotte O's baseball, which is a lot of fun. I like the Crockets. I like wrestling. I like to get my sister in the suplex, the the claw, the Russian sickle, the mm-hmm. you know the, the the sleeper hold. So I was I loved coming to see the O's play and seeing Haystack Calhoun or you know Wahoo somebody McDaniel. like that. Yeah, dra- dragging the infield. <laughs> Uh, I like NASCAR. I'm a car guy. I love automobiles. So I, I, I kind of got that. But the but pre-George Shin, Charlotte wasn't any more of a sports town than Murfreesboro was. But to see from then to now, as NASCAR continued to grow, as AAA baseball came to Charlotte, as George Shin brought the Hornets to Charlotte, as Jerry Richardson defied every odd and brought the National Football League to Charlotte, as the NASCAR Hall of Fame comes, as now David Tepper buys the Panthers and has big plans for expansion. Charlotte has grown up. I mean, Charlotte has gone from that uh, little scrawny little eighth grader that you you didn't know how she was going to turn out, and now she has blossomed into a raving sports beauty. So this is season two that I'm in the middle of uh, putting together right now, and you're you're part of it. Uh, season three, can can we do another one someday? Because there's much more I want to tap into here. Oh, we got tons more. Yeah, I feel like I've I've been too long winded with my answer. No. So hopefully that wasn't the case. But no, I appreciate you, Bo. I appreciate the the production elements you bring to the job. It's it's easier to not do it the way you do it, but uh, but your show definitely benefits from uh, from the attention you give it in that way. Well, uh, you talk about baseball broadcasters. When I was growing up, it was. Uh, 
used to listen to Ernie Johnson and and uh, Skip Carey and 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 company Pete Van Weren on Braves yeah. the Braves Radio Network. And you're right, calling baseball on the radio is a tough thing to do. You, my friend, uh, continue to be, but have been part of the soundtrack in my head, uh, and, and part of what drives me to to keep a certain standard in this business and want to be in this business and do more things. Uh, you're, you're one of those guys. You, you, you may not realize it, but, and, but I, and I'm sure people all over the, the Southeast are listening to this right now. I hope they are. Uh, that look at you the same way, but you're one of, you're one of the guys and I, I appreciate yeah. what you do. And I, I thank you for spending some time with me. If I'm the soundtrack in your head, maybe you should get some counseling. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's, uh, it's good stuff. Mick Mixon, the play-by-play voice of the Carolina Panthers. Before that, the color commentator alongside Woody Durham on the Tar Heel Sports Network. I learned today that uh, you were once uh, the voice of the main AAA baseball team. The main guides. The main guides. Absolutely. And uh, we, we give a tip of the hat to Bob McAllister. Blood and Guts McAllister. Love that guy. Thanks, Mick. Thanks, Bob. I know that I have to say something, but I hardly know what to say, except for the fact that Carolina is the national champion, 77-71, and tomorrow both teams will fly home. The Tar Heel plane will be so giddy and boisterous that it'll barely need wings and engines. And the Michigan plane will transport young hearts heavy with disappointment and thoughts of what it would feel like had the outcome been different. Williams on the drive, gets it back out to head, long outside shot, short rebound, and May, it's over! microphone to try to get onto the court. We'll keep it right here in St. Louis. And that's going to be it. The final seconds tick off. It is over. There will be some Panther silver at the golden anniversary Super Bowl. The Carolina Panthers, champions of the NFC, are headed to Super Bowl 50 in Santa Clara, California. A Monday night football classic. Four-man rush. New England goes three receivers to the right, one to the left. Brady backs up to throw, moves up in the pocket. Brady throws end zone, intercepted. Panthers win. What a penalty marker. We have a penalty flag, and the Patriots are clapping. Oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. Sweet Caroline started the play, and then they took it off the speaker. Brady was going to be hit. He threw the ball. It was picked by Lester. Hold up. Nope. Nope. They pulled it up. Pick the flag up, bro. Pick it up. on Monday Night Football. Pick the flag up, referee. Pick it on up. Woo! Unbelievable theater. All the way even after the clock expired, we didn't know. Because that ball goes on the one-yard line. That's what it goes at. They interrupted Sweet Caroline. Hey, I don't care. that to Sweet Caroline. Caroline can go home. The bandwagon had a flat tire. (laughs) There was coolant leaking from the radiator, but it got to the house. Carolina 24, Patriots 20. Great game by both ball clubs. And Cam Newton starting to grow the legacy of the fourth quarter comeback. It has come down to what I think, Nick, all of college basketball wanted. One against two for it all. McCamps top of the key. Tonight, live from St. Louis, the Tar Heels take on Illinois for the national championship of college basketball. Two on one break. The line of Marvin Williams for the slam dunk. Here, all the action with Woody Durham and Mick Mixon 
Pre-game at 8, tip-off at 9 tonight. Carolina versus Illinois on the Tar Heel Sports Network at News Talk 1110 WBT, home of the UNC Tar Heels. And so the road continues to our 100th anniversary. I'm Bo Thompson. Join me next time on my WBT Century Podcast.